Colossians chapter 1. Again, series, the electionary is bringing us to Colossians, and I'm going to preach through the book of Colossians this summer. I think we'll get it done this summer. And uh, I'll introduce the book as we go along. All right, so I'm not going to do a big introduction. I'll give you kind of an overview of the book in the context of the sermon. Um, but it's attributed to the Apostle Paul. Uh, there's some question whether it actually is from his hand or from one of his uh, students. So, but we'll treat it as Paul or Pauline. So when I say it's Pauline, I just want you to be aware of the different scholarship out there. Um, but it's a powerful little book, and I think it has a lot of um, relevance. Uh, some of the things the Colossians deal with, even though it's the first century, uh, we deal with as well. So listen to the word of God that comes to us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Listen to the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has also made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as you bear fruit in every good work, as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be strong with all strength that comes from his glorious power. <coughs> Excuse me. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience by joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share the inheritance of all the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And God bless the hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts, that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I mean, probably my Russian pronunciations are great, but Slavatia Alexandrich is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. You may be more familiar with her book about Chernobyl. She is an uh, expertise in oral histories. So she talks to people on the ground. So she's a historian that really builds her work from the narratives of people. And a book she wrote 35 years ago has just been translated into English. It's called it, and The Last Witnesses, An Oral History of the Children of World War II. Now, uh, when Germany attacked Russia, it was a, it was a surprise. <clears throat> remember, they had had a, a treaty, a pact, which uh, was a whole other story. But the Germans did a blitzkrieg into Russia in June of 
41. And that was just at the point where many, many of the children were at pioneer camp. So they were away from their parents. So between the surprise attack, between the bombing, between the evacuations, between the forced conscription of large numbers of men and women, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children were separated from their parents. And the story is part about how they try to find their parents or how relatives find them uh, and how they're taken in by strangers. Many of them never see their parents again. And this one story is told, this, this little girl, she's a now elderly woman, but she remembers as a child uh, when they were given to her and her uh, sibling, her brother, were given to um, a stranger. And this is what she remembers. She didn't let us go, she said. You will, you will be my children now. As soon as, she shed, as soon as she said it, my brother and I fell asleep right there at the table. We felt so good. We had a home now. Whether I had left from the war, I don't understand what strangers are, because my brother and I grew up among strangers. Strangers saved us. But what kind of strangers are they? All people are one's own. I live with that feeling, though I'm often disappointed. Peacetime life is different. The devastation of World War II, to particularly people in the Soviet Union, was widespread. Everybody lost somebody. Everyone had a horror story. But strangers became family. Um, one person says in the book that a parent is like a pillow for a child. It's what enables them to sleep, even in the worst of circumstances. Strangers gave them hope because they had taken us in. They had saved us. Paul is writing to a group of strangers. He's never visited this church in Colossia. Um, matter of fact, the church is converted, most likely, by a person that Paul converted, Epaphras. He's mentioned here in the first uh, chapter. He'll be mentioned again in chapter 4. There's only one other place where Epaphras is mentioned, and that is in Philemon. And what we know about him is that he's in prison with Paul. So if you would, this, uh, the church at Colossia is kind of a stepchild of Paul because his convert converted them. And so he's talking to them about hope. Now, when we think about Paul, and particularly, Paul talks a lot about hope. It's really important to remember, because I think sometimes the word hope is thrown around kind of as this romantic ideal. But Paul is talking about hope from prison. Um, whether or not he ever gets out of this prison, we don't know for sure. Okay. Is this the last imprisonment that leads to his execution? We don't know. But he's in prison talking about hope. Well, I think that's important because hope is most important, I think, as an idea in the face of things that are hopeless, right? Okay, when, when do we need hope most? Well, when you're a little child separated from your parents in the midst of a war, when you're awaiting a test result, or you have the test result. You need hope when people you love are struggling and there's nothing much more you can do for them but pray. From many perspectives, 
it's always hard at any given time to have hope. Today, for instance, the threats of storms and floods, both from nature and the body politic, loom over many. There are many today who are in fear for lots of different reasons this day. The sting of death felt both in the body and in the absence of bodies. Someone told me the other day that he hardly knew any man under 40 who was not depressed. My guess from those folks in the second half of the first century, when this book is written, their prospects and the world which they were living in was more bleak than ours. Yet the Pauline voice of Colossians chapter 1 tells this young, struggling church that their faith, their love, and yes, hope is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. What might even be crazier than saying, saying it was that they believed it. And even the greater surprise, and some would even say a miracle, that it turned out to be true. <laughs> From this little beginning, this little Jewish sect that started in Palestine after the brutal capital punishment death of their leader, is starting to grow. Quietly, the Romans don't even know that they exist right now. The Romans in the, in the 50s, when this is being written, don't even realize there's something that's called Christianity. But within a few generations, it will be the force that, that actually conquers the Roman Empire through peace, not through, not through violence. Hope is a crazy thing. It makes you keep going when all is lost. It lets you turn mourning into dancing. It plants trees knowing that you won't live to see them. It builds cathedrals knowing that you won't ever get to pray in it. It makes you do your best to teach your children that they forget <laughs> that you taught them. Hope allows you to do acts of kindness knowing only to God. It allows you to sing God a new song even when you're standing in the fire of tribulation, pain, and death. Faith, hope, and love. These are themes that are throughout Paul's literature. We, you know, as I told the kids, I quoted 1 Corinthians 13. These things shall remain. But a lot of what is the Christian faith can be understood by the gifts. They really are gifts. Faith, hope, and love are gifts that God gives us. But they're gifts that we live into. They're gifts that we practice. They're gifts that we live out in concrete time. They're actually gifts we give to each other as well. Now, where does this hope come from that Paul's talking about? Again, he's in prison. Okay. This little church is an outpost in the middle of a relatively or predominantly pagan territory almost exclusively so. So where in the world does Paul get off talking about hope? But he says, and I'm really going to refer to the verses here, in verse 14, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now there are a lot of code words and concepts here that, that you know, Paul kind of uh, telegraphs where he's going to go with the book. So we're going to come back to a lot of things here, particularly the idea of knowledge. What does it mean to have the knowledge of God? That's an important theme in the book of Colossians. But the reality of the hope that we have is based on the fact that God has delivered us 
from darkness, whatever that darkness is for you, and that we are in the family, the realm of Christ, and that we've been given both forgiveness and we've been brought back from this darkness. Now I'm going I'm to resort to an old preacher trick here. I'm going to take the three phrases that he has here and turn them into three points. Okay, so we talked about a couple weeks ago. Three is a magic number. Three is also it's a magic number because it allows ministers to be done too, right? Instead of four or five. Okay, so it's magic for you as well. But he gives these three statements about may you, and when you think of that, they're kind of blessings, right? But they're also exhortations. That's sometimes I think. Christianity, particularly Christians, lose the balance. But every command that we have is really a blessing. Okay? And every blessing that we're given, every gift we're given, is something that's to be given away. That's kind of the beauty of the Christian life. In other words, when we're told to do something, it's really a gift. Okay? For instance, you know, when, I, I don't know about your kids, but my kids had a natural attraction to run towards things that were dangerous for them. Okay? Particularly my second son. My second son, the fact that he lived to be an adult is testimony to the grace of God, luck, and his brothers saving him frequently. And all three things were involved. And dad saved him a few times as well. But he just had this natural, if it was dangerous, he one time when we were out in Texas, uh, we were doing this kind of fun rodeo, uh, and there's a lot going on. He, he runs away from me, you know, like this, and goes up and hugs a horse. The hind leg of a horse. And the horse did not send him to Kingdom Cup. Okay? Matter of fact, I thought the rancher was going to have a heart attack. And he came back and I never saw that before. <laughs> so that is good. Okay. But these are four menu, the blessings that I think are kind of encouragements for us. So it's kind of a good summer things to, uh, to think about as you're driving, as you're as you're on vacation, what does it mean for me to live into these blessings that are also commands? Commands that are gifts and blessings. And the first one, may you live a life worthy of the Lord. Now, there's been a lot of bad religion out there that's made people feel guilty instead of set them free from guilty, from guilt, being guilty. There's a lot of people who have used religion as a tool to make people live in shame. You know, God did not invent shame. Humans did, right? In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve uh, break the command, and they're, they're hiding in the bushes, and God says, well, where are you? And they go, we're, we're, we're hiding. Well, why are you hiding? Because we're naked. And God, what does God say? Who told you you were naked? I never, I never told you that was wrong. So humans have been shame, but we blame, you know, we, but we project that on God. And there are a lot of religious leaders. I mean, I grew up, I had good churches, but I was around some preachers who seemed to enjoy beating us up every week, figuratively. And that didn't really help anybody. So this idea of when you lead a life worthy of the Lord, as I think it's an idea that for some people is just foreign. But sometimes it's become an obstacle. I'm not worthy. That's not the point. I have a friend who um, uh, we taught together, and she's both a professor and a, um, and a therapist. And her life work has become mostly caring for caregivers of people who are working with those that are in, in the sex industry, uh, human trafficking things. 
And she's been all over the world. She's down in South America right now. But she told a story where she was in India, uh, I'm sorry, Thailand, working with a particular center that rescued these daughters. And these girls were sent by their family down to the big cities in order to make money for the family through prostitution. And so it's very tricky to rescue these girls because they not only feel guilty for what happened to them, but their family makes them feel guilty for not bringing money home. And actually, some of the girls went back in order to protect their younger sisters from what they'd been through. But she tells this one story of this, this person, this woman, young girl, was so wounded from heaven knows what she went through. And one of the breakthroughs that came for her as she began to heal was the idea that you're worthy because God says you're worthy. You're worthy of love because God has loved you and loves you. Who you are is how God sees you. And God sees you as one of his precious, beautiful ones. The idea that we can live a life worthy of the gospel is solely located in the idea that God has made us worthy through the work of Christ. I one time was dealing with a person who had um, lived a very angry life based on her coming out of an abusive relationship, but her anger all hurt herself. And so she both felt the anger from how she'd been treated in her home and also the shame of what she had done. And finally it broke through to her that God just sees me as his beloved daughter. He doesn't see what I've done wrong. He sees me as the innocent child that he created and died for me to recreate. We're worthy because Christ has made us worthy. And the blessing that you live a life worthy of your calling is that we are called to live as the sons and daughters of God who've been set free from sins. We are worthy so that we can be worthy. Then Paul says, may you be strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. Okay. Now, here's another one. I was, you know, um, I was, it was really, I was talking to my mom this week, and, you know, she's just struggling since the death of my dad, and there's, you know, there's a lot of things going on, and, you know, one of the things she said, I'm trying to be strong, and I said, well, but it's not up to you to be strong on your own. You have us, you have a family. And also, it's, it's not your job to prove to God you're strong. It's your job to lean on God's strength. Ron Chernow uh, has written maybe the best biography of George Washington. I highly recommend it. You need a beach read, Washington the Light. It's, it's a great book. It's really well done. And he, he talks about he talks about Washington. I think George Washington may be one of the most misunderstood uh, and misappropriated figures of our history. Um, this is what he says about Washington. His military triumphs had been neither frequent nor epic in scale. He had lost more battles than he had won, had botched several through strategic blunders, and had won at Yorktown only with the indispensable aid of the French army and fleet. But he was a different kind of general fighting a different kind of war, and his military prowess cannot be judged by the usual scorecard of battles won and lost. His fortitude in keeping the impoverished Continental Army intact was a major historical accomplishment. 
It always stood on the brink of dissolution, and Washington was the one figure who kept it together, the spiritual and managerial genius of the whole enterprise. He had been resilient, resilient in the face of every setback, courageous in the face of every danger. He was a rare general who was great between battles and not just during them. Not a particularly great general, not very successful in paper, but he was a great man whose men were following to the end of the world. Our strength is in our leader, not in us. And that's a great, that's a great, that's a great command. It's a great blessing. May you be strong in the Lord. Because God is strong. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully. You know, okay. All right, this is another one of those things that have been kind of misused, okay? All right, and the idea that uh, Christian hope and Christian joy is not optimism. It's not about positive thinking. Now, again, I'm not against the power of positive thinking. That's just not Christian hope. I remember one time talking to someone, I know tomorrow's going to be a better day. And I said, how? How do you know that? I hope it is for you. Well, it helps me keep going. I go, well, that's all right. I'm not, I'm not judging if it keeps you going. But my hope is not in tomorrow's going to be a better day. My hope is that my tomorrow is in the hands of God. Because there are a lot of people that have bad days that are followed by worse days. Okay. And life, you know, life is not, our, our life isn't defined by Okay, I, I take my bad days and subtract them from my good days, and that's my that's how I judge my life. We can endure everything with patience and joyfully because Christ has borne it before us and is with us now. You know, I put that little poster, you know, God I trust that God will give me anything today I can't handle. Is that the same deputy for Adam? But my experience is God is always giving people things they can't handle. Right? If I can handle it, I don't need to pray. Okay. Right? I've been with people on days, I, I just don't know how we got through those things. There was more than they could handle. There's a lot of things that are more than you can handle, but if you know that God is with you, if you know that God has walked before you, on the days that you're being crucified, if you know that the crucified one is with you, then that's how you get through. I remember one person whose husband died way too early. Uh, and she said, I'm not happy, but I do have joy. Someday I'll be happy again, I hope. But I know God is with me. Christian Wyman is one of our great uh, Young poets. Well, he's young because he's younger than me, right? So, uh, but he's been a pretty prolific poet. Um, came from West Texas, a pretty conservative Christian background. Lost his faith. Uh, was diagnosed with an incurable kind of cancer. It's one of those cancers you kind of keep at bay by treating. Okay. Um, and during the process of dealing with that, um, 
he's come back to faith. But it's not a, it's not a all's going to be okay faith. It's a very um, beautiful and faith that's always mixed with doubt, which I think is genuine faith. And he wrote this. I'm a Christian because of that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I know, I know. He was quoting the Psalms. Who quotes a poem when they're being tortured? <laughs> the words are the point. The point is he felt human destitution in its absolute degree. The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in our suffering. God is with us, not beyond us in our suffering. We can be prepared for the difficult days. We can live in the difficult days because we know that the one who loves us more than we can ever imagine not only went through those days, but is going through them with us once again. Paul, writing from prison, having suffered more things than we can imagine for the faith, his body broken, both from the travel, from the torture, from the beatings, from prison, was able to say, may you have joy, may you have hope, May your faith allow you to live in the love of Christ. And the whole world is being changed because of the hope you have in Christ. The good news is when you are allowing Christ to be with you and helping you change in the midst of your life, the mystery of the gospel is that that's somehow changing and redeeming the world as well. You know, I, uh, this last week we did a podcast and we talked a little bit about kind of the general pessimism about the organized church uh, that's going on out there. And, you know, being a church of story, there's always been pessimism about what's going on in the church because it's hard to live up to Christ. As a matter of fact, it's not hard to live up to Christ. It would be impossible. So if we're honest, we're always really, <laughs> we're always honest about being hypocrites. Uh, you know, I, I one time, and this is not original of me, but someone, I was down in South Jersey, and, and uh, a guy I knew from soccer said, you know, I like you, but your church is full of hypocrites. I said, well, then isn't church a good place for them to be? Where else should they be? You know, that would help them. I go, and I told him, we can't all be as good as you are, John. And he kind of laughed. But this past, uh, <laughs> Uh, this, we have a youth group now, which I'm talking about. And so, for some reason, I, they, well, I said, what would you like to do? And they want to go laser tag. So here I am. I go laser tag. I've never gone laser tag before in my life. Okay? I think I've done better if we were using live weapons. All right? But that would be wrong. Right? So anyway, I didn't really totally understand, totally understand the rules until halfway through. Okay? And uh, so they conveniently told me that halfway through. But, uh, uh, while we were waiting between, um, between the uh, event, three of the girls who didn't even really know each other before the confirmation started, I saw one of them put their arm around the other. Okay? And she said to me, actually, we're family. To me, that's hope. And, and frankly, those, those three need to feel that. Right? That's a gift that God has given them. So 
even in the midst of what's going on in the institutional church, uh, you know, the struggles every congregation has, struggle denominations have, the struggle non-denominations have, the way we kind of, you know, we're angry at each other about different things, not us here, Christianity overall. Okay. Paul from prison, you and I from these seats here can have hope uh, because of the one who endured everything for us. It has made us into a family. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 And say with me the words of the Apostles' Creed.